0: Hey, uh, good morning. My name is Derek, for those of you that I haven't met before, and there's a few now. Um, I am one of the elders here, and on exceedingly rare occasions, I stand up here with the Brittany mic and uh, pretend to preach. This morning, we're still in the middle of celebrating Advent, right? Because Christmas hasn't come. Um, And instead of talking about some subversive way that we can reclaim Advent through like spending money or not spending money, it's confusing. Which one should it be? I don't understand. Um, We're going to talk about Christ in the carols. Um, (laughs) When Kevin texted me and said, Hey, do you want to preach over Christmas? I said, yeah, sure, what's the topic? I mean, I know the topic is Jesus, but uh, what's, the, what's the idea? And he said, uh, Christmas carol. I put my phone down, and I walked away, and I was like, I don't understand. I, like, I don't know how to address this to him. Like, I feel like I know him pretty well, but why is he telling me to preach about Charles Dickens? <laughs> and I held on to that thought, I'm ashamed to say, for <laughs> a couple of weeks um, before he texted me and goes, so what song did you choose? Um, and I was like, oh, I get it, that's, uh, that's pretty clever. Um, so why, why base a sermon, why, why talk about a Christmas carol um, it, up against a sermon uh, as we sort of celebrate Jesus? Christmas carols are, hold on to your seats, music. I didn't promise to blow your minds, um, but you still have to listen. So, Christmas carols are music, and they're a sign of this season, right up there with Christmas trees and uh, presents and brown paper packages wrapped up with bows. Um, We sing them all the time. But here's the thing about music that I think we often forget. Music is really an, an essential part of human existence. Isn't it? I mean, think about it for a second. Um, how many of you have a friend who can't carry a tune in a bucket? Um, if you don't, the friend is you. Um, we we sort of gently poke fun at people that uh, can't keep rhythm, uh, that that can't sing the lyrics to songs that literally everyone knows, like. I don't even know a song right now, like the ABCs, right? Um, we sort of gently poke fun at people because it's it's so normal for us to have this relationship with music that changes the way that we feel, that sets the mood for a situation. I mean, um, if you if you want to see an interesting, uh, well, I just think it's hilarious, it may not be interesting, but um, to, to help illustrate this idea that, that music guides our emotions. Um, there's a clip on the internet that I'd highly encourage you to look up. It's the the final scene of Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, where everyone is walking down the aisle to receive their medal, except for Chewie, and uh, somebody stripped the music out of it. It is the most awkward thing ever. It's just like 10 minutes of people walking slowly down the aisle, people looking at each other like grinning and making fake small talk. Like it's weird to not have music to be a part of that celebration. And, and, and more than that, um, studies have shown that if you listen to certain types of songs, it can affect the way your heart beats which is why I'm so shocked and, and impressed by people who, when they're working out, they listen to a podcast. Like, I can't do that. I have to listen to something that's, like, really hard and aggressive and fast-paced because otherwise I'll fall asleep because exercise is, is really not fun, and why would you want to do that to yourself? And you have to have some sort of motivation to get you through that. My point is that God, it's almost like God designed us to have a response to music. And more than that, let's take it a step further. It doesn't just affect our emotions, it affects our thinking. Music, like anything else that you come into contact with in your life, through media, through relationships, they're all teaching you something. What is your music teaching you? Specifically, what do Christmas carols teach us? Secular or Religious, I think that we would all kind of agree that the main message of the Christmas season, as told through the carols, is maybe summarized in one word, hope. We, we talk about the hope of getting together with loved ones over a meal and opening presents. We talk about the, the hope of, um, of getting home because we, we feel distant and detached we talk about the, the way we hope for a loved one to spend time with, even the you know like the creepy ones, like uh, maybe it's cold outside," or um, some of the other uh, Santa baby, things like that, they're, they're all about hoping for something, whether it's for presence or family or love, peace, joy. But where I think the, the church, specifically Breaks from the secular understanding of this message of the season is not on what that message is, but on what the message, what the source of that hope is, right? Um, See, most of these songs seem to be saying that the source of this hope, the reason we can hope during this season is because we can be kind enough to one another or give enough presents to one another or receive that right present that everything's going to feel fantastic. What we're hoping for is, is that this sense of longing that goes unfulfilled 11 months out of the year is suddenly going to be realized during the Christmas season, which in this case begins on the Saturday after Black Friday because we have to have one more day to be just absolutely selfish and violent to one another. And then we're going to be perfect. And if we've been good enough, then all of our hopes will be realized and all of our longings are fulfilled on Christmas morning. And then there's sort of this like drunken feeling of hope and joy after Christmas that carries us through the new year. And then the new year brings with it a new sense of failure because we made a new resolution that that doesn't quite hit the mark and we suck and we're never going to get there, right? But even the songs that are ostensibly about Jesus like the one that we just sang, O Holy Night, really water down the point, not in the way they're phrased, but in how we sing them. We, We are wrapped up in this sense of awe at the idea of hope. That's like the collective cultural response across the board. 80, no, sorry, let me rephrase that number. Uh, It's not 80, I just saw the study this morning, I was half asleep, forgive me for getting the number wrong. Um, 70% of Americans report that on Christmas, and the the only other day this is true is on Thanksgiving, but on Christmas they are happier than any other day of the year. Because of this hope that comes from this idea that we are the answer to our problems. We can be nice enough. We can give the gifts that are good enough. We can spend time with the right people. We can provide ourselves with the fulfillment of this desire, the realization of this hope. But this is a flawed idea. Because the thing we're missing isn't more of ourselves. The thing that we're missing is outside of ourselves. The thing we're missing is Jesus to... uh, Sorry to, for being a little bit cliche there. And we Christians do the same thing, right? I mean, I, I, uh, it was literally just two years ago, the first time that I heard this song, that, I, that it actually like, clicked in my mind, that I'm not, just talking, I'm not just singing a song that reminds me of Christmas and reminds me of the fun I'm going to have on Christmas morning with my kids, but that it's about Jesus. And specifically, it was that verse, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, and then he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. And I had to stop the song and go back to the beginning and listen to Bing Crosby sing that to me one more time. <laughs> and I think I listened to it like 10 or 15 times in a row, just in awe of a true and better hope than I can ever provide for myself. So. This morning, I want to borrow from O Holy Night, which is my favorite of the Christmas songs about Jesus. Um, and I want to layer it over top of the passage that Paul just read for us. The, this, this passage is called the Benedictus, and, and it, it, it contains the first words that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, says after like nine months, nine or ten months of divinely imposed silence. This angel shows up, says, hey, you're gonna have a son. He's like, but I'm too old, no way. Uh, Sounds very Abrahamic. Um, And and the angel says, "Uh, it is gonna happen, and because you don't believe me, I'm gonna strike you with silence until that moment comes, and then you can speak. And so that moment finally comes. He sees his son. Now, I know some of us in here are are parents. I am, I've got uh, two and a half children. I am the exact American statistical average (laughs) until March. Um, and then I'm just going to be huddled in a ball crying on the floor. Um, When my first child, Trip, who's going to be five in February, when he was born, I remember very clearly what I said to him. The nurse wipes him off. Uh, He had um, somehow... Well, I'm not going to tell you that story. Um, It was gross. They clean him off. They hand him to me. And I'm holding this sweet, eight-pound, five-ounce baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And I, I just blurted out, Hey, buddy, I'm your daddy. Because he'd never met me before, and I thought maybe he'd be confused, and this would make him feel better. <laughs> I love you, and I am so sorry for all of the ways I'm going to mess up being your dad. And I just, like, my throat was like, <laughs> Kind of like it is now, just like remembering it. But Zechariah has had more time to think about this uh, in his months of silence, and and he looks at his son, and the first thing he says is not to thank God for his son John, but to thank God for his son Jesus. Well, you like that? That's clever, right? Um, The first thing he does is praise God for sending a redeemer, not his own son. That's second. What is it about the birth of Jesus that we still celebrate it 2,000 plus years later? That Zechariah, at the birth of his miracle child, who had been foretold to him by the Lord himself, his first words are not praise for the child in his arms, but praise for God's son who was to come and that would make the writer of this song, O Holy Night, proclaim it as just divine and rejoice over the birth of this savior. It's actually kind of ironic that the the author of this song uh, would point to this night as divine. Um, See, this version is not, I'm pointing to a blank screen, this version is not actually the original version of the song. Right? Like, we're not going to be a literalist here. Uh, this was a, a poem written by a French wine merchant, right? So, I, you know, French wine's pretty good, the song's pretty good, um, to commemorate the, the restoration of that most holy of church instruments, the organ. This small French town, a small church, had their organ rebuilt, and to celebrate it, this guy pens a poem called Midnight Christians. And what's interesting, based on the the history I was able to dig up about this, it seems like this guy, his name was Placide, which just makes you sound a certain way, right? Uh, Like you drink your coffee with a pinky up. But Placide wrote this poem. Yes, he's like praising God in it, but he actually sort of emphasized aspects of theology that lined up with his politics. Because in the original version, there's a lot of focus placed on people who are high and mighty bowing down to this little baby. A lot of focus not on humility for humility's sake before the throne of God, but humility of the mighty, because that's who he was politically opposed to. And then uh, an American, a few years later, by the name of John Sullivan Dwight, whose name's not nearly as fun to say, um, a Universalist Unitarian minister. Didn't like that version of the song, didn't like the literal translation from French to English, so he took the song and put his own twist on it. And here's the weird thing Universalist Unitarians, as part of their theology and and doctrine, I use those words pretty loosely, um, they reject the notion of sin, especially original sin. Like they believe people make mistakes, but they believe that if you're good enough, you can overcome those mistakes and you'll be granted, I don't know, peace or something. Um, but they don't believe in hell, so they don't believe in punishment or or redemption, right? So you're not being redeemed from anything, and they also reject the idea that Jesus is your savior, that he's divine, that he did anything for you other than demonstrate for you what it looks like to be good. And in fact, when, when John Sullivan Dwight was interviewed about his translation back in 1870, he was quoted in the Atlantic magazine, which was around even then, He was quoted as saying that for him, the point of this song is really that we're hoping in unity, that the world would just come together and be one. That's what we hope for, and that's what this song is about. And yet, isn't it ironic that even though both men who put pen to paper to write this song, or some version of it, tried to co-opt God, the birth of Jesus, for their own purposes, but God's truth still shines through. It still echoes through these verses. And, and I think the benedictus is a good pairing, uh, like a good wine and cheese or something, I don't know. So what is it about Jesus that we still celebrate? What is it about Jesus that makes Zechariah focus on him and makes this song say, this night is just divine? It's because Jesus is worthy of being first. First. And borrowing from the song, I got three reasons why I think uh, we can see that Jesus is worthy of being first. Number one, before the birth of Jesus, the world was locked in a hopeless state. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. And by the way, these are things that I think Zechariah affirms in his scripture, so I'm not trying to preach primarily into the song. It's just catchy to do it this way. So, before the birth of Jesus, the world was locked in a hopeless state. And there's something about Jesus that changes this. The second thing, when Jesus appeared, until he appeared, the soul felt its worth. When Jesus appeared, there was something about that incarnation, the birth of that baby, that changed the way our souls felt, or at least the way our souls can feel. And third, while Jesus' birth gives us reason to rejoice, fall on your knees, hear the angels' voices, it, it doesn't just give us reason to rejoice, it gives us something new to hope for. Something new that hasn't been given yet, except in promise. So first, Jesus isn't the symbol of the things we hope for. Jesus is the thing for which we hope. Before Jesus came, there was something true about existence. It was futile. Everything not futile like you worked for a feudal Lord, but futile like the Borg. Resistance to the Borg. And I'm going to spend the majority of my time this morning on this idea, because I think if you don't understand the reason Jesus' birth was so significant, if you can't understand what it was like before Jesus came, it's really hard to understand how he can be first for you, why he's worthy of it. See, people only need hope when focusing on the present isn't really that great. Sometimes we have hope in a goal that we've set, a future version of you, right? Like um, a couple of years ago, I started counting calories and running, I guess my better judgment, because I felt like I'd put on a little bit too much weight. And so my goal was to lose 20 pounds, That idea, that that goal that I had set for myself restrained my stomach, restrained my appetite. It had me to get up early and put my shoes on and go for a run, no matter how dreadfully hot and miserable it was, or how terrible I felt afterwards, or all of the ways that it destroyed my knees. The goal that I had set for myself was a hope that I was striving for, and so I put up with the inconvenience of it. Sometimes hope is something a little bit more desperate. Sometimes hope is something, it's this reality that we want, that we long for, that feels impossibly far off. And we long to see it happen because the world we're living in, the the circumstances that we're experiencing are just so broken. Somebody trapped in an abusive relationship someone experiencing a a debilitating illness or or having suffered a tragic accident. You hope for restoration. You hope for renewal. You hope for salvation out of that situation. I'm not even talking about religion. I'm talking about physical, physical salvation. Getting out of that situation, having the illness taken out, having the, the injury fixed. That's the kind of hope that this song is pointing to when we sing Long lay the world in sin and error pining. See this idea, this this image that we're given of the world laying down, is not the image of a world at rest. It's the image of a world so zapped of its strength that it can't move. So, pining, the word that we sing, pining, is not just about, like, you might have, you might have heard the word pining applied. So, like, when you, there's like a significant other, right, a, a boy or a girl, and, and you really like them and you really want them to notice you, people might say you're pining for that person, especially if they're older or me. But that's not really an accurate application of that term. Because the definition of pining is that you want something so badly, something that you can't get, that's just so far out of reach that you waste away. It's like your soul atrophies because this desire is just never going to be filled. So when the world is laying in sin and error, it's pining for renewal. It's pining for renewal. Redemption. And and this is true of the human existence. It just has been for generations. You can look at the literature of any nation, any, any culture, any sort of category of literature, and you will see hope for renewal and redemption filtered throughout it. Religions are set up to produce hope for people. Barack Obama won a landslide election on the promise of hope. There is something about this idea of hope that is just powerful. Like there's something in our souls that when we see something promising hope for us, hope to us rather, that we just grab onto it like a, I don't know, like our door after the Titanic sinks. We want Renewal. This goes all the way back to the beginning of human existence according to the Bible, right? So uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we get the creation story. God creates all of these things. He speaks existence into being and then he gets down and uh, the implication is he uses his hands to form Adam out of the dirt and he, with his mouth, breathes life into Adam. And then Adam is longing for partnership there's nothing in the world like him and so God causes a sleep to fall over Adam and he takes one of Adam's ribs and he forms Eve it's personal it's intimate he doesn't just say it from afar off God is part of the creation of Adam and Eve and everything is perfect God says, all of this is yours. You're going to be my stewards over my creation. You're going to be my image bearers in this. So you're going to be the sign of my glory in this creation. But one thing, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the fruit represents something more than just An arbitrary rule. David Platt, in his book, Counterculture, he says that what's really going on here is that this literal tree is representative of what is required for good order. The order of creation, the the critical component of the design of creation is obedience to God. God alone has the authority to set right and wrong. God alone has the authority to set boundaries. And God alone has the authority to be sovereign over creation. And so the the commandment to avoid the tree, to not eat its fruit, is not designed as a test whether or not you would interpret it as such. It, It is there to convey to us the importance of obedience. And so when the serpent comes to Eve and tempts her, the temptation is not for a juicy piece of fruit. The temptation is to take for herself a role that was specifically reserved for God. And eating the fruit was an act of defiance and rebellion against the order that God had created. It was the first act of rebellion. This was, this was essentially the signing of the original Declaration of Independence. And, and because of the way uh, God works through creation, and Adam eats this, right? Adam, if you look in the Bible, Adam is the one that carries the guilt for this, not Eve. We never talk about being, uh, like, we, we, don't, we don't harp on Eve for eating the fruit. We harp on Adam for letting that situation happen. We're we're referred to in Romans as children, descendants of Adam before Christ comes along. And and so all of us, because of Adam's failure, have signed on to this declaration of independence. But here here's the catch. This freedom that we thought we wanted, this freedom from God's rule and oppression, the concept sounded great, but in reality that freedom turns out to be slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to decay and death and destruction. And so God, in, uh, in, in Genesis 3-7, you see the first effect of this. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first effect of sin is a feeling of shame and a desire to hide. Compare this. this 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 is really significant and interesting. The eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. Compare that to when Adam and Eve were first created and joined together. What does the Bible say? The Bible says they were naked and unashamed. This isn't a sexual thing. This is an indication of just the perfection and joy and, and openness, like the connection, right? And now that relationship is broken. And they've got this uncontrollable desire to hide, not just from one another, but then later, a few verses, God shows up. He's walking through the garden. What do Adam and Eve do? They hide from the all-knowing, all-seeing God. So, like, also they're stupid now, right? Right? So assuming for a second, like let's set aside the scripture. Maybe, maybe you're here because it's nearly Christmas and somebody convinced you to come because you thought this was going to be a Christmas Eve service and somebody good was going to be preaching. I'm sorry. Um, so so maybe, maybe you don't agree with this interpretation of human history uh, and, and this interpretation of where, of like maybe that sin exists, let alone where it comes from. So, so let's just stop for a second. Think about your own experience. Does life go the way you want it to all the time? If you're afraid to answer for the class, I'll answer for you. No, it doesn't. And I'll use myself as an example. Just in the last 24 hours in my house, here's a recap of events. Saturday morning, first thing, I get up, I make my coffee, life is peaceful. We're Genesis 2 right now. It's fantastic. My son gets up, I go up to his room, and I punish him for getting out of his bed before his light was supposed to turn green. Um, Turns out, I was wrong. His light had actually turned green because Caitlin did that because she thought I wanted him to be up with me when I was enjoying my peace and quiet. It's a thing. We've gotten through that kind of. But I, I unjustly punished my son. That's sinful and wrong, right? So, so then let's fast forward to the rest of the morning. Um, Trip continues to be disobedient because he's four, as I mentioned earlier. And life is hard for him. He doesn't understand his emotions, um, like marginally less than I do. And so it caused him to do all kinds of weird things that are usually wrong for him. And, and so on two or three occasions throughout the day, I not only punished him, but lost my temper in the midst of doing so, not because what he was doing was wrong and hurtful for himself, but because it annoyed me. My punishment of him was not driven out of love for him and a desire to see him make good choices and grow up into a a man of God who loves and honors his parents. It was driven out of desire that he would just stop that stupid thing he's doing because I'm trying to concentrate and write my sermon. Sin number two for me, right? Well, and three and four and five and also six. And, And then that night, almost as sort of like retribution, like you earned this, Dad, he threw the most terrible fit and screamed... Have you heard a small child scream before? Like one that really has some pipes. (laughs) I'm holding and trying to take him to bed. As he's kicking me as hard as he can the whole time with his heel, which doesn't matter how big you are, your heel hurts, he screamed so loud in my ear that my head hurt for the next three hours. I literally, like I thought I was going deaf. That's just... One day in my house. And it's not just because I have kids, because notice, the, the failure in those moments, with the exception of that last one when he was yelling at me, was me and my selfishness, my inability to control myself, my inability to love my son the way God's called me to. I'm the failure. I'm the problem. So even if you would say that, like even if I even if I didn't believe that I carried the guilt of original sin, like the Bible tells me because of Adam. I'm still screwing it up now just fine on my own. At some point I decided that eating that fruit looked pretty good too, metaphorically speaking. I actually love fruit. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> if if you want something, if you want an example like outside of my house in just the last 24 hours, take a look at the news. You've got civil unrest in multiple countries across the globe. You've got oppressive dictatorships that are bombing civilians that are shooting protesters just because they want freedom. There are wildfires in Australia right now that are so fierce, I think it's even managing to catch the dirt on fire, which is what most of that country is. Like the, there's, there's plenty of evidence, if you look around, even just for a second, that creation is broken, that something is wrong that the world as as Paul would put it is groaning like it's in the pains of childbirth but still there's hope because as as God banishes Adam and Eve from paradise as he banishes them not just from this garden but more importantly from his presence look at what he says in verse 15 of chapter 3. He's in the middle of cursing, and he says, as he's cursing the snake who tempted Eve, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the important part. He shall bruise your heel and you, sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If Like Maybe you've never been in a fight, so let me clarify this for you. If your head is the part of you that hurts the worst out of that entire fight in both people, you lost. It doesn't matter if the other guy bruised his heel, kicking you. You're the one going to the doctor. So this is called the Proto-Evangelion. I think uh, Daniel mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. This is the first giving of the gospel promise that the world is broken, that it is in need of salvation, that it can't provide itself, and God will provide the salvation. The entire Old Testament is one long, repeated promise over and over and over again, this promise that there is hope coming in a person sent by God. God repeats this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to David. Excuse me. God proclaims this promise of a redeemer to his people through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, and others. Jesus, uh, sorry, Zechariah himself points to this promise in in verses 68 through 73. Can we put uh, Luke 1, 68 through 73 up again? or just you know, just like Luke 1, whatever it starts with, ish. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Every story of the Old Testament whispers Jesus' name sometimes even those boring genealogies and land transfers, if you dig into the history of those things, you'll find Jesus at the end of it. Every story in the Old Testament whispers his name. Jesus is foreshadowed in Joseph, the beaten brother sold into slavery, who in the end redeems the brothers that abused him. Jesus is foreshadowed in David, the defender who secured victory on behalf of God's people against an unbeatable foe. Jesus is foreshadowed in Job, the righteous man who was made to suffer for God's glory and in the end secures forgiveness for his accusers. Jesus is foreshadowed in Hosea, the prophet who's sent to make a prostitute his bride. It goes on and on and on, over and over, this promise that the Redeemer will come. We get these hints of what it's going to look like, and then, as we sing, then he appears, and the soul feels its worth. Zechariah praises God, not just for the redemption, but again, in verse 68, he has visited and redeemed. Just as with creation, God is personal and intimate. He doesn't work from afar. He works up close. The God we serve is personal. You can see this in all of these stories that I just mentioned, right? Like the the redeemer in these stories was in the story, he was in the events. He was in the circumstances. He didn't like Joseph. Didn't save his brothers from a different country. He drew his brothers in and granted them salvation in person. There's another beautiful story uh, in in the Old Testament, in Genesis 18, where, where God comes down to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And we know how that story ends, but this is really important. I think uh, we might overlook it sometimes because of all of the Jerry Bruckheimer-ness of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. When Abraham asks God why he came down, God kind of hems and haws. He's like, I don't know, should we tell him? Should we not tell him? No, okay, we'll tell him. What does God say? I have heard the cries of the oppressed, and I have come down for myself. To see whether or not they're true, I have come down for myself. We were in an intractable state of sin and rebellion, and God came down That is beautiful. But when Jesus came, he didn't come as God came in Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't come down just to bring judgment. No, he he came to bring redemption. He came to bring what what Daniel explained beautifully last week. He came to bring propitiation for us. He paid a price to redeem us. So not only is it personal, and that should make us feel like pretty special enough, but it was costly. And this is really important. You remember I, I mentioned just a moment ago that 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 Jesus is foreshadowed through Hosea, who who takes a prostitute to be his wife. Well, in Hosea three, this wife Gomer winds up in slavery because she's she's gone off from him, gone off from Hosea, um, and and you know, lived out a life of licentiousness and adultery and wound up in slavery somehow. Doesn't say how, but that's where she's in. And Hosea goes out to where she is and pays to redeem her out of slavery. He offers a propitiation to save her out of that slavery. Take her back as his bride. That's what Christ came down to do for us, to pay the price that it costs to get us out of that slavery that we impose on ourselves. But what is the cost to get us out of that slavery? Well, You can find this all over the, the scriptures, but the, the answer to save you time, that's why I'm here, right, is, is death, the, the wages of sin are death. It's another way of saying that, that sin, in order for sin to be satisfied and redeemed, to be forgiven, something has to die. Even when you look at when, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, there's this like little side note that you can just kind of toss away pretty easily, but it says that, that God knit together Loin claws of animal skins. Where do those animal skins come from? Well, the implication is an animal had to die. Something had to die in order to cover their sin and shame that they now felt, that they now carried with them. God did that on their behalf. They didn't know how to kill an animal and skin it. But God's like, I built the thing. Let me do this for you. Here, now, Go even as he's punishing them, even as he's banishing them, there is mercy. And, and, and after Adam and Eve, we see uh, through <clears throat> through, Ab- uh, through Moses, there's this uh, entire system set up in Mosaic law of sacrifices that cover sin. You do this thing, this is your offering. You do this thing, this is your offering. And And then there's all kinds of sacrifices that are made to atone for sin. But the reason the system was required is because those sacrifices, those atonements, were temporary. Every lamb for a sin offering, no matter how spotless and perfect it was, still comes from a creation that's marred by sin. It's still only going to get you so far. Right? I mean, the blood comes off the doorpost eventually. And so you've got to kill another one, put it up there. But Jesus... This is really annoying, this little thing, sorry. But Jesus comes down to pay this price for us, and because he's God, because he is fully divine, as he is fully man, it is a perfect propitiation. But I want you to understand that that when we talk about the gift of Christ's death, it is not because he suffered physical abuse and a horrific, violent end. Yes, those are important parts of the story because they're important parts of the prophecy of the Redeemer. But what really happens there, if you, if you look at um, Matthew 27, what do we see? Jesus is on the cross, and before he breathed his last, he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The price he really paid was worse than death. He was, for the first time in eternity, separated from the Father, separated from the Son, truly out in the wilderness. And yet, even though the sole purpose of Jesus' incarnation was for God to come down and pay this price for us isaiah 5311 which isaiah 53 by the way is one of the uh, most direct and obvious prophecies of Jesus as savior that there is in the Old Testament but in isaiah 5311 after it describes that uh, Jesus was He'd borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, but God afflicted him for us. It says in verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus did this for you on purpose. This wasn't some sort of forced obedience where the father says to the son, get down there and do this. He was on board from beginning to end. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to be separated from God so that we could be counted as righteous. This is like if if you sit down at Christmas and you're exchanging gifts with your family and friends, and somebody got you the most obviously expensive or incredibly thoughtful, or both, present that you could possibly imagine, and you open it up, and you're like, I don't even know what to say. Why? What, how, how did you even think of this? And, and you got then, like what you're thinking in the back of your mind is like, oh God, I got a gift card to Target. How, how awesome do you feel in that moment, right? You feel this weird mix of like, whew, man, I really blew that. Um, can I have a, like, oh, I'm sorry, I left yours at home. Amazon said it was supposed to be delivered on Monday and it just never came. I don't know what's in it. And you like slip the gift card back in your pocket, right? Um, so you like feel this mix of unpreparedness and shame, but, but doesn't it also just feel Incredible when someone loves you and cares about you so much that they give you a gift that just takes your breath away. I have no idea what it's like to give that kind of gift. My wife can tell you I have been trying my hardest for years, but there's just something about it. I am emotionally incapable of doing this. But I very frequently find myself on the receiving end of gifts that I don't feel like I deserve. My wife is the most thoughtful gift giver. She's the most loving person. And sometimes she can be the most patient person too, but we all have our flaws, she's not perfect, but I love her anyway. But she somehow is able to just naturally give me things that I could never think of getting myself. My birthday one year, I came home. I'm getting off topic a little bit, but I, I came home and I like walk in the front door, and there in the office is this beautiful five-panelled canvas artwork. This nature scene. I love mountains and nature and lakes and trees and forests. Like it reminds me of home, and that's what I see. And I'm looking at it, and in the left panel, there's an ATAT walker. It's like a nature painting with Star Wars right in the middle of it. Two of my favorite things. Like, the only way it could be better was if like Jesus was walking on the lake. <laughs> but that would be, like, too much. I didn't even know that existed. And she tracked that thing down and got it for me for my birthday. It wasn't even, like, a big birthday. Like, I think I was turning 32, 31, 30-something. Like, not one of the Hallmark birthdays, Right? Take all of those moments that I've ever experienced of giving a terrible gift and getting an incredible gift in return, put them into one moment, and it doesn't even come close to the magnitude of the gift that we receive in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God personally comes down, personally steps into our miserable existence that's mired in sin and pain and suffering and death. Death he's going to experience. A death so so terrible, we invented a word based off of how terrible it is. Excruciating. Means of the cross or from the cross. And he did that because he loved us in a way that we just don't deserve. In Jesus, God has given us this gift of infinite worth that we can't match. It's it's a gift not only of redemption, but but more than that. like The the gift just keeps going. It's like you just keep opening up this never-ending, incredible present. You get salvation. You get justification. But what does the song say? The next verse in the song is, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks, yonder's a great word, right? Yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. In Jesus, we have reason to celebrate because we've received this gift, this long-awaited promise has come, this this hope for redemption out of the muck and mire of sin and the brokenness of creation. It's come, but wait, there's more. Zechariah says, looking back at the Benedictus, he says in, uh, in the latter part of verse 73, he says, like he talks about Jesus coming and defeating our enemies and he says to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies so now that we're saved to grant us that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness all of our days If you're familiar with the the idea of the temple and like God's holiness and and why this matters, um, in the the center part of the temple, uh, there was this room called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies in some Bibles. And this was where God came down and accepted the sacrifice. This is where the high priest who was appointed to represent all of the nation of Israel would go into this room with a rope tied around his waist after he's gone through an incredible ritual of cleansing so that he's not dirty when he sets foot in front of the Lord. And there's a curtain over this room. Because people were kind of afraid. Well, God told them to put the curtain up. but Because if somebody came into the room and they, weren't, they hadn't gone through the ritual cleansing, they weren't ready to, to stand in the presence of God according to the way he prescribed it, they would just die. Like not any, none of this. Like oh, don't look! Like get out! Like no! Like it was just dead. Like Uzzah, who, Uzziah, who who reaches out to grab the ark of the covenant because it's falling down. The minute he touches it, he dies because he's not worthy to be near God's holiness, and God's holiness was in the ark, as God in, God's holiness rested in the holy of holies. And the, the the rope was tied around the priest's waist in case he forgot to like I don't know put the bull's blood on his left thumb, maybe put it on his right thumb because he forgot this time, or maybe maybe on his clean white garment of linen, there was like a little piece of wool on his shoulder. And if he died, oh, I'm not going in there to get him. I'll just drag his butt out of there. When Jesus died on the cross, this really interesting thing happens where, where Matthew says that the veil of the temple was ripped from the bottom to the top. The symbol, the very symbol of separation between God's holiness and our wickedness was no longer necessary. Because, as Isaiah said, the righteousness of Jesus now makes us righteous. And and we're able to interact with God in a way that we were never able to before. Gosh, we gotta rejoice in that. But, but understand that the, this gospel message that, that we are like we are broken and sinful, but God has redeemed us, God has, has paid the price for our propitiation, it doesn't stop on your personal salvation. Like I, I've spent some time talking about that today, like the majority of my time, but I want you to understand: there's an entire another sermon series on this idea that the gospel is for you, it is not about you. Because God's work of redemption doesn't stop with you. It doesn't stop with me. Colossians 1:20 says this, "And through him, that's Jesus, God is reconciling to himself whether on earth or in heaven all things." Everything. Not just you, not just me, not just people, Everything. You read through the rest of scripture in the New Testament, especially, you're going to see that includes, and especially in the Old Testament, you're going to see that includes systems of government, community values, deserts springing forth with life, mountains that produce nothing but beauty springing up with like vineyards and wine just flowing down out of the mountains. That'd be pretty awesome, right? Creation itself is to be renewed. But this sets up some tension, doesn't it? Because Jesus was the promised redeemer, but, oh, look again, remembering my last 24 hours, I don't feel that redeemed. I okay, just be honest with you. Like I, I don't. I, like when I watch the news, when I interact with my kids, when they've skipped their nap, when I'm hungry, I don't feel really redeemed. I don't feel like creation is all that redeemed. Why is that? That's because our redemption is is justification in a moment. We're no longer guilty of sin but sin's still here. And this sets up this tension that is known as like the already but not yet of Scripture. In other words, we are saved from the guilt of sin, but we're not yet free from the presence of sin. And so in Jesus' incarnation, we're given a renewed hope for the redemption of all things. Because we can see that God has been good to his promise. He has delivered the hope for redemption. We now see and understand what that hope is, what it means. We can see it's no longer this far-off hope, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, generation after generation after generation being promised. No, no, it's coming. Trust me, it's coming. Trust me, it's coming. It came. And now because it's come, we can look back and rejoice like the weary world that we are, and yet continue to hope in something new and not yet seen, the redemption of all things. When that happens, we will rejoice under God's rule in holiness and righteousness for the rest of our days, truly without fear. And it looks like this. In Revelation 20 and 21, we see this judgment take place, we see Satan defeated, we see heaven and earth made new, not destroyed, like I don't know if you knew this or not, but, but your afterlife, like the thing that comes next, is not just some ethereal plane where you float around in a disembodied sphere, it's a new creation. And and in Revelation 21, we see this vision of God's city coming down and resting. And around him are all nations and all tongues and all creatures bowing down and worshiping him eternally. And Revelation 21.4 says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Not just because it stops, but look. All those things have passed away. As uh, one of the hobbits says, all of the sad things are going to come untrue. That is the hope that is now represented for us in the birth of Christ. That is the reason why Jesus is worthy of being the first the first focus of this new father. Why our souls should feel oh, fulfilled, to feel their worth. Why we now have hope of more to come. Christmas is on Wednesday, right? Three days. I want this to sit on your heart over the next few days. What can you do in this time remaining to adjust your focus? How can you demonstrate to these people that you love, that you're going to be spending time with, that that you love them because Jesus loves you. How can you demonstrate value and worth to those you love in the gifts you give them? These are concepts we've been talking about this entire Advent season, right? You're in the home stretch. How are you going to bring the focus of this season in these final 3 days fully and completely? On the hope that we have in Christ and rejoice over Him on Wednesday morning. Um, We're going to do communion. Uh, Nothing special about the bread or the juice. Uh, In fact, well, those crackers are pretty great, but this is our symbol our reminder of that hope, that Christ's body was broken for us. He bore our transgressions. He took the bitter punishment so we can enjoy the sweet bread. He drank the bitter cup of God's wrath so that we can remember and rejoice in his salvation with, well, we use grape juice. Before you step up to take that, remind yourself of that. Merry Christmas.